And I really want to say thank you to Kevin and Ellen and all the great hard work, really. They make it look easy, but it's not easy, you know, trying to make all of this happen. And really, you know, it wouldn't be a party if people didn't show up. So thank you uh, for coming and helping this be delightful for me as well. I did make a few more, well, I say I, the office folks mostly helped uh, make a few more of, the, of these booklets. Some of them have no cover page just because I forgot that part of it. And there's still one almost illegible one uh, from my attempts earlier to do it. So if, uh, if some of you, I know if someone came yesterday and asked for you did, yeah. So there you go. You're welcome. Oh, okay. So now we're now we're passing them around. I now somebody else decide who gets them because I'm afraid we'll run out, and I don't want to be blamed for that. Okay. So so while he's passing those out, um, I do encourage you, by the way, not to try and follow what I'm doing in there because I usually don't follow what's in there. Uh, but it, uh, it, it has what I was supposed to say. <laughs> so if you would, uh, if you remember, now those are, in fact, I checked yesterday and I was able to pull it up. Uh, that is all uh, in PDF form at uh, www.wingshadowministries.org forward slash Bayshore. So I do know it works because I tried it yesterday myself just to be sure that it works. Well, I'd like to pray again. Now, Father, it's an unbelievable privilege that you've given us to be able to address you that way. Uh, We take it so for granted sometimes, but we were on the outside. We were alienated and enemies of yours, and Jesus, you have uh, come to reconcile us and make peace with us through the blood of your cross and invited us into this incredible relationship, really in the fellowship of the Trinity, so we now can say uh, to the King of the universe, Abba, Father, thank you for that. Now, uh, we want to recognize that you're the one in the heavens, and what that means is that you're right here present with us. It doesn't mean you're a long ways away. It means that you are here. Your kingdom of the heavens is at hand, as Jesus said. So help us be addressing you, not as if we're thinking we have to beam something a long ways out into the outer reaches of the universe, but you're right beside us. You hold us by our right hand, as Asaph said. You are an ever-present help in trouble. And so we thank you for your presence and your power and your wisdom, and I pray that you would help us to just Rest in that, then, because you are an ever-present help. And, and, Father, I pray that you'd help us think more highly of you, even today than yesterday and tomorrow than today, that we would hallow your name, that we would really believe uh, that your reputation deserves to be at the top by far of anything that we think highly of. And I pray that we will demonstrate that by imitating you, as dearly loved children. And I pray that all of those around us will learn to think more highly of you because they see us. This is an incredibly tall order, Father, um, but that is exactly what you have in mind for us as your representatives, your images. So restore to us that glory that you have in mind for us that is uh, the, the bloom of character that we might show others how good you are. That they might even be inquiring of us of why we have such hope, why we are a people of such uh, settled and, and relaxed and peaceful character. And uh, Father, I pray that your kingdom, your, um, your way, your will would come to bear right here, right now, in this hour, in our hearts, in our lives, and everywhere in the earth, just as it is, where you hold complete sway in the heavens. And would you just give us what we need today, of every kind, 
And forgive us, please, for uh, the sins, the wrongs that we commit, just as we're forgiving others who commit wrongs against us. And keep us out of trouble of every kind. And please deliver us from all evil, including the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory all belong to you too. And that's just the way we like it. Amen. You remember when Jesus told the story about rabbit hunting? Okay, yeah, um, thank you, I'll, I'll tell you. He tells this story about rabbit hunting. Um, he, it, it's a story about a guy in, in uh, southern Michigan actually went rabbit hunting, and he went, in, he went rabbit hunting on private land that was open to the public, a set-aside land that the landowner had been generous and open to the public. And the way Jesus tells the story, this guy went out with his beagle, and for some crazy reason he took a rifle instead of a shotgun. I don't know if he's just too cocky or that ignorant, I don't know. But in any way, he went out to rabbit hunting, and as he was rabbit hunting on this private land with his beagle, he did see a rabbit. He saw several rabbits, and he shot at one of them and missed the rabbit, but uh, his bullet penetrated the ground. And out of the ground came bubbling this uh, crude oil, I mean, Texas tea, black gold. And the guy... He quickly gets, he just, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, and he grabs a bunch of brush and he covers it up and he pushes the button on his beagle shot collar and it came howling to him and he put him up at the back of the pickup, threw his gun in there, not even cased it, still loaded, so on and so forth, jumped in his truck, uh, drove home all the way saying, oh please, oh please, oh please. Let me figure this out. And he goes home and he quickly boots up his computer and he gets on the county equalization website and he finds uh, the name and address of the taxpayer and uh, because there's no phone number there, he's saying again, oh please, oh please, oh please, help me figure out uh, how to contact this person. So he get, goes quickly to white pages with that name and with that address and yes, he finds that they have a landline. And he dials up uh, that landline number and please, someone be there, please, somebody be there. And the guy on the other end of the phone answers the phone and he says, is this Rudy Finkbinder? The hunter says to the guy. And the guy says, yeah, that's me. And he says, do you own that, that section, that 640 acres over there that's open to public hunting? And he says, yes, I do. And he says, thank you so much for you know, your generosity to allow public hunters. He said, I was out there with my beagle this morning, enjoyed it so very much. And uh, I enjoyed it so much and so did my beagle that I was just wondering while I was out there hunting, would, would you be willing to sell this land? <laughs> and uh, the, the Rudy Finkbeiner said, well, I really wasn't thinking about selling the land. It's not for sale, but as you can see, I'm not using it for anything. I've just let it go fallow and and uh, now I've opened it to public hunting because it ought to be used for something. And uh, the hunter said, well, I've been looking for some recreational land for a long time, and uh, I just love that land like no other land I've ever seen. <laughs> and uh, so Rudy says, well, I'd probably be willing to sell it. I don't have any emotional attachment to it, really. It wasn't in my, you know, I didn't inherit or anything like that. It's just something I bought years ago. And, and the guy says, well, how much do you, Rudy, or the hunter says, how much would, do you think you'd want for it? And they negotiated a bit, little bit back and forth. And the Rudy said, you know, a good farm ground down our way is going for 6,000 up an acre. Now, this isn't the best farmland. It doesn't have pivot. It's not field, no field tile and that sort of thing. Nonetheless, uh, you know, I wasn't really trying to sell it. So even though recreational ground might be going at 2,500 or so and good farm ground at that's 6,000 and up, I think I ought to probably get at least 5,000 an acre. And calculator's going off, 5,000 an acre times 640 acres, that'd be what, $3,200,000. Uh, and uh, the hunter said, my beagle really likes that property. And I really like that property. 
I'd like, could I bring a purchase agreement over this afternoon? And um, perhaps an earnest deposit, how much would you want for an earnest deposit? And the owner said, well, yeah, I suppose so. Um, seems like with that kind of a purchase price, maybe $100,000. And so the hunter said, okay, I'll be over this afternoon with a purchase agreement and $100,000 earnest deposit. And uh, when he got off the phone, he went, <laughs> and he immediately called up his banker. And he said to his banker, uh, we, have a, we have a banker client privilege, right? And the banker says, yes. And he said, I want to share with you an opportunity that I know I have, and I'm willing to spend everything I've got to get it but I need, uh, I'll probably need you to float me a loan, a bridge loan in the meantime, so I can sell everything else. And after telling his story, the banker said, come on down, I'll give you a cashier's check for $100,000. And uh, I, you know, so we have a good longstanding relationship and you have the assets to back it up and then you can get this thing under agreement and you can begin liquidating everything else. And when they closed the deal, the hunter never had buyer's remorse because he knew that what he bought was worth a lot more than he paid. Now you do recognize Jesus told this story. Yeah. He said, let me tell you what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's like a man who found a treasure hidden in a field and when he found it, he immediately went and sold everything in order to get it. And when he got it, he never had buyer's remorse. And Jesus said, oh, if you don't get that, let me tell you about a pearl merchant. Remember? You know, same thing, same story. So here's the thing I want to emphasize, of course, with this extended uh, little... Um, take on Jesus' story. What Jesus is offering is life in the kingdom and it's worth more than anything and everything we'll ever have no matter how much that is. And as soon as I say that, everybody's saying, oh no, I'm going to have to give everything up. And we should be saying, you mean that's all it takes? There was a, a fellow that came to Jesus who was a person of means and some authority. Those th things often go together, you know, person with some wealth and some authority. And he came to Jesus and he says, I'd like that. I'd like that kingdom, th that kingdom life you're talking about. I'd like that. How would I get it? And Jesus said, well, um, just, you know, you, you're a Jew, right? And the guy says, yes. And he says, well, just do what Moses has taught you to do. And the guy says, I've been doing that my whole life. And Jesus says, God, you're almost there. See, we think Jesus is, you know, somehow this is the fine print now that's showing it's impossible. That's not what Jesus was doing. He was saying, if you're actually of the habit of doing everything that Moses has said to do, you are so, so close. All you have to do now is sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. That's all. But he suddenly reassessed his perspective in life and realized how well off he really was as a person and went away just rejoicing. No. Went away sorrowful because he couldn't let go. Couldn't let go. I think sometimes we really need to hold those two things uh, between Jesus' story of the treasure hidden in the field and the pearl of great price and the so-called rich young ruler in juxtaposition. And we need to be frequently analyzing our own perspective 
on what it's worth to walk with Jesus in his easy yoke, in the kingdom, uh, pursuing the zoe, the abundant life that he promised, which is always um, a product of becoming the kind of person Jesus is. How much is it worth? Because it isn't going to come automatically. We all know that. We've all been around long enough to see that. It's going to take a complete abandonment of ev to every agenda that Jesus does not endorse in our lives. And that's going to look different for every one of us. But what are the things that I need to sell in order to buy the kingdom? You understand what I'm saying? I'm not pretending that you can just go actually physically buy it with money. But Jesus is the one who said, now listen, if you want to be my apprentice, this is what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. These are all saying the same things from all different directions so that we really envision the value of walking in tandem with Jesus just on a regular basis. And Jesus is certainly addressing that subject in uh, the first part of today's text. Now, I'm going to try and do what is probably not realistic, and that is to get through the last half of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7 today. <laughs> and uh, in order to do that, you know, probably one of the things we should do is actually uh, take a look at it. So if you do have your Bibles, let's uh, take a look at chapter 6. Thankfully, this is at least familiar territory to you. You know what it says that has both its advantage and its disadvantage because when we know what something says, we think we know what it says. And uh, that can be a great hindrance, uh, for sure. Mike Krzyzewski, the great Duke basketball coach, um, who's won, I think, more you know, Final Four championships than anybody, uh, any other coach, if I recall. That's not too matter. But no matter what we think of Duke or Mike, we know that he's a good basketball coach. And one of the things that's one of his favorite lines to me is this. He says, the hardest thing for me to do with an incoming freshman basketball squad is to convince them that they know nothing about playing basketball. And they all think they know it all. They've been playing since they could, were in diapers. You know, that's the way it is these days. These guys, all the players, before they ever play a college game, know all the other players on all the other teams because they've all been playing them for years in AAU and all sort of things like that. But he said, the, that's the hardest thing for me is to go to take this class and, and convince them they know nothing about playing basketball. And that's really what Jesus came to say. You've got to rethink your thinking. You really don't know anything about living in the kingdom. That's what Jesus said. That's what repent means. Rethink your thinking. You've, been, you've grown up in it, and you know, in the religious world, you, you think you know all these things. You're very familiar with the text. The Pharisees, of course, many of them, the scribes and Pharisees, have memorized the whole Pentateuch. But they knew nothing. He said, you don't have any idea what it's saying. And so that's what he said right in the beginning of this text, not chapter 6, but chapter 5. He said, I, didn't I want you to know, I didn't come to throw that out. I came to tell you what it really says and show you what it really says. I came to fulfill it. And today he's going to tell us he's trying to teach us to do that too. That's what he's going to say by the time we get done here. So I'm going to start reading at verse 19. Jesus says this, Now do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. 
I just want to stop and admit I've been trying to do the impossible way too often. Way too often. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Well, let's go ahead and talk about um, that. Somewhere I had a clicker. There it is. And I put it down. We all have treasures. It's the nature of being a human being to treasure. Uh, think about uh, children for a minute and uh, what they treasure. Perhaps a teddy bear, perhaps a blankie, something. But it's the nature of a human being to treasure. We were designed to treasure, and we do treasure. You can think of things you treasure, some things that have very, very little monetary value to anybody else. You know, the old saying, one man's junk is another man's treasure. But it's really true. You know, there are certain things. I say, I, at, back at Wing Shadow, um, you know, there's a $50,000 barn filled with $50 worth of junk. <laughs> That's pretty well true. I'm not quite a hoarder, but I, I have a sentimental streak, that's for sure. And there's stuff that uh, I got from my father who might have gotten it from his father, and it hasn't been used in 50 years, but why in the world would you ever want to get rid of it? <laughs> but that's not all we treasure. That's not all we treasure. We treasure all sorts of things. And uh, many of the things we treasure, of course, really, if we would acknowledge it, are um, not worth treasuring. And now I'm not primarily talking about the tangible junk. I'm talking about the way we manage our lives, the sorts of means that we use to navigate our own individual human existence. These are the things Jesus is talking about. In fact, the scripture even talks about treasuring or cherishing sin in your heart. You say, nobody likes sin in their heart. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we do. <laughs> we, we hold on to the way we think we have to, the means we think we have to use to navigate human existence, and that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. We all have treasures, and Jesus advises us to treasure things in the kingdom rather than the things on earth. In other times, he'll talk about uh, the spirit as opposed to the flesh. It's really the same concept. Paul will talking about, of course, sowing to the spirit and not to the flesh. Jesus will say that this, you, you can do nothing without the spirit and the flesh counts for nothing. You know, these kind of things. They're all talking about the same thing. There are two kingdoms. They're the kingdoms that we often focus on in how to influence and, and manipulate and get our way, whether with anger or with contempt or with manipulating people with our wor words or with fantasized desire or just using people, including spouses, and discarding them when we think we've gotten all we want out of them. 
that's another issue we haven't even really talked about and don't have time to go into. But all of these things Jesus is talking about, is these are the ways we've held on to and grasped how to manage life. And of course, that would also be true about our financial resources and all sorts of things that we aren't really willing to give up. So we're like the rich young ruler and we ultimately just go away sorrowful and uh, don't enjoy the life in the kingdom that Jesus has to offer us. He talks about, well, I asked the question, is this good advice? And, of course, you know as soon as I ask that question, then I'm going to say, so why don't we follow it? (laughs) Because we really don't think Jesus has the best advice available on this subject. We might say so, but we always act on what we really believe. You know, that's what James' little brother, or Jesus' little brother James said. He, he said to people who just said, say, well, I believe, but I don't need any proof of that. I don't need to work that out. I don't need that to actually make a difference in my life. And he says, no, no, no. The way you actually show what you believe is what you work out, the way you work it out in your life. The, the kind of faith you're claiming you have that doesn't work out in your life is dead, James says. It just doesn't do it. It doesn't, it doesn't cut it. It's not really a belief. You always actually follow your own treasures. You always do. You always pursue what's really valuable to you. That's the nature of being human. And so it's really good sometimes to analyze what our treasures are. Now, my, Jesus' advice is to spend our energies investing in the kingdom where the inadequacies of temporal existence, moths and rust, cannot diminish our investments. Now, I want to make it clear, of course, that when he says, when I say investing in the kingdom, I'm not talking about just doing church work or something like that. I'm talking about becoming the kind of person Jesus is in our everyday lives. Especially that's what he's talking about. Again, don't forget, this is, by the way, this talk on the hill is a brilliant curriculum that's all connected and all began where it began on purpose. With anger, contempt, fantasized desire, using people as objects rather than ends, and uh, manipulating people with words, and and uh, you know doing what we do for the applause of others in order to get you know our egos fed by other people. And Jesus is building on this theme now of what it what what it will take for you to become the kind of person Jesus is will be to get rid of these things, to stop managing your life that way and manage it instead uh, in, with him in his kingdom where life is. But we'll never do it if we don't believe it's good. I mean that it's really good, that it'll be wonderful life. We just won't do it. And he says it will. Moths and rust corrupt. It's very interesting. I was with a... Uh, acquaintance of mine, an acquaintance that's sort of, you know, kind of between an acquaintance and a friend, or a very friendly acquaintance, let's put it that way, (laughs) and uh, this is just a few weeks ago, and this particular guy is, uh, and I'm I'm not dissing, but by the way, I'm not criticizing him, that's not the point, I'm just using this as an illustration. This guy, one of his great treasures and one of his great quests in life is uh, big game hunting with a bow and arrow. And uh, he, you don't know anybody quite like him because he has uh, 28 of 29 North American big game animals already in the Pope and Young record book. So if you're familiar with what that is, uh, you don't know anybody like that. Like I said, I don't know anybody else either. He's, the, he's sort of the Michael Jordan of uh, bow hunting. And I talk to him sometimes, several times a week, and so on and so forth for other things, but I always ask him, you know, about his most recent hunting and, and all that sort of thing. And he, he's a person of means also, which you sort of have to be, you know, to do that. And, and of course, this isn't, in order to be on the record, this, none of this stuff is stuff he shot, you know, inside of a fence somewhere. You know, you don't, you don't get, you know, bighorn sheep and mountain goats and that sort of thing uh, that way. And so he, it's really an amazing accomplishment from the human perspective. There's no doubt about it, no matter how you feel about it. It's just it's just amazing. And uh, I was with him a few weeks ago at a, in a different context altogether, and I was just chatting it up with him. He had built this great big 
you know, half gymnasium or whatever size addition on his house so that he can have all of his trophies in it. And they really are his trophies. They're, you know, they're what he's, they're evidences of what he lives for. And I was asking him how things were going for him. And he said, oh, I got moths in my house. And it turns out moths burrow into the fur on the mounted animals and they eat the hair off right along the skin. And great big blotches of it just fall off. And immediately I thought of this text. <laughs> now this particular man is also uh, a generous person. I know he gives... Uh, uh, you know, significant amounts of uh, money to charitable causes and that sort of thing. I, I, we, can, we can look at him, and because that's not our problem, we can say, oh, yeah, that's what you get. <laughs> yeah. And then we'd be violating the next thing we're going to talk about. But it ought to at least be a lesson to us. You don't own anything beyond your character that you're taking to glory. You know, the old saying, you never saw a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Well, you might see a hearse pulling a U-Haul sometime, but it won't mean it's the stuff in there is going with them. I don't really have time for this, but I'm going to tell you a joke, okay? Can I tell you a joke? So there's this guy who's uh, on his deathbed in the hospital, and he has three uh, friends and sort of trusted advisors, and he, uh, one's uh, his pastor, and one is his uh, accountant, and one's his attorney, okay? And he calls them in to his hospital room, and he says, okay, guys, I know I've, my prognosis is really poor. I'm going to be gone within just days. I want you to know that I want you to go, the three of you together, I've executed a limited power of attorney. I want the three of you together to go and empty out all of my liquid investments, and I want you to uh, each one take a third of it and put it in an envelope, and just before they close the the casket, I want it in cash, and I want, just before you close the casket, I want you to uh, put the envelope in the casket, and I want the three of you to be accountable one to another. You're each going to put your envelope in together. And so um, everything happened, and uh, the, 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 the person who was ill actually died and, and was buried and so on and so forth, and the three all put envelopes in the casket, and afterward, uh, the preacher was the first to, to confess. He said, uh, I got to tell you that um, I'm sure that Joe would have wanted a tithe of at least the third I took to be given to the church. So I've taken a 10% out, I just want you to know, and I'm giving it to, I've, I've given it to the church already. And the accountant said, well, I've got a little confession to make too. Um, Joe still had a little balance. Uh, that he owed me for work that I've done and he probably forgot about, but I did take that out and I, I, I put all the rest in there. And the attorney looked at them and just with shock on his face and said, I can't believe it, I wrote a check for the whole amount. <laughs> well, you can't take it with you but you can send it on ahead. You know, that's what the old saying is, and there's some truth to that. And Jesus is just giving us brilliant advice. A thousand years from right now, when we're gathered around the throne, we're going to really, really be glad for everything we've sent on ahead. And this is not, of course, primarily just money, but of course it would affect our money, it would affect our resources. But we have to believe that what Jesus is giving us here is brilliant advice, understanding that everything that we tend to think 
will give us satisfaction, is incapable of it. It's a broken cistern. It's, it's spending money on what is not bread. On the other hand, if we use our same resources, whether it's financial or time or energy or anything else like that, to bless other people, joining Jesus in his kingdom work, we can't lose it. But it's, I want us to see, if we could, that he's not primarily talking about sort of like getting there and seeing what you have in your heavenly bank account. He's talking about us becoming the kind of person he is. Because again, glory is the bloom of character. Our reward is who we become. And there's nothing better than that. There's nothing better than actually becoming the kind of person he is. Because then we'll be joyful just like he is and full of life and able to uh, live with him and partner with him in all sorts of creative ventures forever. <coughs> It'll be amazing. Well, what does God care about? What does he treasure? What are God's priorities? What's he doing on earth? We should invest in that. Invest our time, our energies, our, our prayers, our attention, our goal. We ought, that ought to be our goal. That ought to be our treasure. What does God treasure? Well, first of all, of course, relationship with him relationship with Jesus, the foundation of all treasure that satisfies and lasts, the treasure of becoming the kind of person Jesus is. That's it. That's what Jesus is aiming at. Remember, he started right out in this message saying, now you guys are the hope of the world. You're the salt and the light. But, and I want to help you become that kind of a person that hasn't lost its saltiness, but that is actually capable of accomplishing what I've designed for you to do as a person. And what, but what that's going to require is that you have a whole new perspective on the availability of the kingdom and what I'm really saying in the scripture. What I'm really saying in the scripture is you, it's not a matter of rule keeping. It's not a matter of just not killing somebody. The question is, do you want to? It's not a, just a, a question of whether uh, you, you know, have fantasized desire over some or whether you actually commit adultery with someone. The question is, do you want to? And uh, so on and so forth. You know, what's your heart? What's your motives? What's your goal? What, who, who are you as a person inside? What would you do if you could get away with it? Imagine your life before you as a movie doing all the things that you would love to do if you could get away with it. What would it look like? And Jesus says, the problem isn't that that's just naughty. The problem is that it's bankrupt. It can't possibly satisfy you. You were designed differently than that. As C.S. Lewis said, you were designed like, uh, by God like an engineer uh, designs an engine and uh, makes it to run on gasoline. You don't put oil in the, in the gas tank and antifreeze in the crankcase and so on and so forth. You, you, it has to operate the way it was designed to operate. And we as human beings were designed to operate by living on God and his way of doing life. And that's what we often just miss. It's the great omission uh, out of the great commission. And then, of course, relationship with people. That's the kind of person Jesus is. It's a person who does everything he does for someone else. He's completely um, loyal to his father. He said, I didn't come to do my will, but only his. But th what that meant was giving himself a ransom for other people. So Paul would say, let this same perspective be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Precisely because he was in the nature of God, he made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant, be, being found in fashion as a man, became obedient even unto death. And therefore God has highly exalted him, so on as you remember. Uh, so we'll, we'll love others like ourselves, as Jesus would say. We'll come to see people as images of our Father, who our Father treasures, destined for eternal glory or horror, and we will understand our critical role in helping them on to glory, growing into the full measure of the stature of Christ, borrowing uh, another line from Paul. So, and then we'll treasure all of the things we have as gifts from Father, giving for us richly to enjoy, but always as a tr trustee or a fiduciary of those things. Always not really owning them, but being entrusted with them for the advancement of God's kingdom, for the help of other people, for being a blessing. Enjoying everything he pours out on us, but enjoying them uh, for the benefit of others. And really 
breathtaking an analysis. We'll purposely and thoughtfully consider how to use everything we have. If we were serious about you know, signing up to be Jesus' apprentice, one thing we would do is we would sit down for whatever time it took. It might take 10 minutes, it might take a day. And just really be honest with him about what we treasure and then ask him, how can, how can I use this in a way that is, uh, brings honor to you and blessing to others? And if I can't, tell me, do I just need to get rid of it? And that could be a hobby, even. You know, I'm not just talking about stuff that you can touch and feel. It's our time. It's our energy. There is unbelievable latent energy in the body of Christ that's unused for the kingdom. Just unbelievable latent energy. If you want to you know, read a little more on that subject, for example, I would recommend a book by John Piper called Don't Waste Your Life. Just because it was a challenge to me, and I'm glad for it. And He, he and I kind of grew up uh, in parallel situations in a way because we both admired uh, C.S. Lewis and Francis Schaeffer as early as young men, and so I kind of resonate. He tells that, about that, and don't waste your life. But anyway, um, see, as soon as we're reluctant to do that, we must go back and recognize and just confess, I don't see that what you're offering me is the treasure hidden in a field. This is the problem. We have to envision the value. What Jesus is really offering us is flourishing life, and that will undoubtedly let go of mean letting go of some of our own agenda and maybe some of our own stuff, but at least our own agenda in life. We can't have our agenda and his agenda. We cannot serve two masters. He said so. I didn't, I'm not making any of this up. You know, He said you cannot serve two masters. You'll either end up despising one and clinging to the other or hating the one and serving the other or however exactly he said it. You, you know, you, you understand that's what he's saying. Now, this is sowing to the Spirit rather than to the flesh, as Paul would talk about. He says, if you sow to the Spirit, you will of the Spirit reap life everlasting. You sow to the flesh, you will of the flesh reap corruption. Just, it's just going to, you know, moth and rust destroy. It's just going to dissipate to nothing and have no benefit for your character. We must actually come to believe that Jesus is not trying to manipulate us into doing something he wants, but that is contrary to our best interest and joy. Because this, this is what I too easily believe. I believe that Jesus has sort of an arbitrary a set of rules that he wants me to follow because he wants me to follow them. He's God. He can tell me to do anything he wants, and I ought to do it. But that's not his perspective at all. His perspective is, John, I want you to live. I want you to flourish. I want you to run like an engine with gasoline, high test, you know, in the engine. I want, you're a high-performance machine. Uh, you better burn you know, some high-octane fuel. And I want you to be able to you know, be like a Corvette with a 427 and a four-barrel you know, Holly carb and a four-speed Hurst shifter on the floor. And when you pop that clutch, baby, it's going to smoke <laughs> the tires. Yeah. That's what Jesus has in mind for being me being. Just to really be able to do. I love what Dallas Willard says about grace, for example. He said, people living as apprentices of Jesus burn way more grace than people just receiving forgiveness of sins. He said they burn grace like a jet burns diesel fuel on takeoff. The grace of God is available to energize us to work and do according to his good pleasure. But we'll have to use that grace. When our treasure is right, our heart is aligned with the energy of the kingdom, grace, the same energy that raised Jesus from the dead and sustains all things. Now this is Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1, for example. I'm not making any of this up. Just think about Ephesians 1 and Paul's praying for them that they might have that same energy, that same life that raised Jesus from the dead and sustains all things. When our treasure is right, our whole life is on the right track. And so Jesus illustrates with our eyes and what it's like to, you know, be blind and how you just run into things and life is a lot more difficult. Uh, but if your eyes seeing accurately, 
then you can do what you need to do to get about life a whole lot better. And that's he was using that as an illustration of treasuring the wrong things. When we're treasuring the wrong things, it's like we've just closed our eyes to the real nature of reality. We're trying to sort of feel our way through life and not very successfully at that. We're no longer in the dark. We know precisely what it is to be in the dark about something. We know exactly what that's like. I'm completely in the dark about that. Well, one thing we don't want to be in the dark about is how to live successfully as a human being. And Jesus says, you're in the dark about that. You need to rethink your thinking and uh, get your treasures on track. If we're serious about taking the advice of Jesus, then, uh, we should seriously consider taking an inventory of our treasures. What does our heart value? What do we protect? What do we strive to obtain? About what do we daydream? I think analyzing your daydreams is one of the best diagnostic tools, uh, if you're a daydreamer, as I am, uh, for where your treasure is. It's impossible not to follow our treasures. That's just what we do. Uh, we serve them. We can't help it. Our treasures orient our heart, and our heart organizes our whole self. Jesus firmly advises that we cannot serve two masters, that can't go north and south at the same time. We just can't do it. Well, Jesus illustrates with birds and flowers. And uh, he's, you know the illustrations of what he says now. Don't, therefore, don't worry. By the way, yesterday I just confessed that I am um, very interested in other people's opinion of me. And I need to you know, get over that and care only about God's opinion of me. Except to the extent I represent Jesus, of course, then I really am looking for their opinion of God and not me. But I also just want to confess that I have a problem with worry. It's been a lot worse in other days than these days, but uh, it still flares back upon me sometimes. And so I just confess that because Jesus here says, now, John, you don't need to worry about anything. If. If you pursue, it's the kingdom and its righteousness. If you pursue the kingdom and my way of doing things, my way of living life, the, the right way to live, righteousness, diakasune, or however you say that word, that, that, if you do that, it's the right way to live. If you pursue the right way to live, as I've described you, which is the righteousness of the kingdom, then you don't have to worry about anything. He didn't just say you have, don't have to worry about anything. He said if you do that, you can be sure that I'll be, I've got your back. I love this line. I think it's from Dallas Road, too. Just do the right thing and count on God to bail you out. <laughs> you can trust him. He's got your back. Just do the right thing. We should not worry about anything beyond today. He said anxious and worry both, by the way, are both words that carry the connotation of, of choking or, or gag or not being able to breathe. Isn't that the truth? Nothing quite like a panic attack, is there? Well, some, most of you probably don't know about that. But anyway, um, yes, we can really trust him. He does have our back. Can I just say, uh, I just want to tease you with this, okay? I think when Jesus is talking about uh, the birds and the uh, flowers, in the one hand, he's talking about that which just sort of takes us to sustain us physically with the birds being fed. And, and uh, he, so he says, don't, don't worry about what you're going to uh, eat or drink when he does a little summary of that or what you're going to wear. But when he talks about clothing, see, now listen up carefully here because it's, you know, sort of almost time for me to stop. It's not really. But I mean, you know, it's getting stuffy in here and all that. But this is I just want to pique your interest with this. I think what Jesus is saying with the illustration of the lilies is that you, can, you do not have to manage your own glory or your own reputation. I will give you glory that surpasses the glory of a lily. And the reason I think that, and that's, of course, the psychological side of us, 
which is uh, the emotional side, uh, the non-tangible, the spiritual part of us, is destined for glory. We were designed for glory. We're destined for glory. Paul would say all the stuff that's happening to us is not even worthy, worth comparing with the glory that shall follow and that sort of thing. But the reason, here's why I believe that. Because he says, Solomon in all his was not arrayed like one of these, you see. Well, even today we talk about the clothes making the man and that sort of thing. And I mean, every, particularly women, they really understand that uh, there's something connected, uh, you know, to, with clothing and glory. And I think that's what Jesus is saying. He's not just sort of repeating the, you know, you won't get cold sort of thing. No, he's talking about being clothed with glory, which, of course, would include the clothing that Jesus makes for us in terms of the white robes and that sort of thing, and, and even the skins that were given to Adam and Eve because they needed clothing because they had lost their glory, and it had, been, it had become shame. And so all of those psychological, spiritual aspects of being a human being and living with no shame but with glory and a praise from God will all come when we pursue the kingdom and its righteousness. I want to repeat again that, that I think it's John Henry Jowett or something like that. His last name is Jowett, old Scottish commentator who had this great line, glory is the bloom of character. And this is, I think, just a great poetic way of saying what Jesus was saying here. If you focus on becoming the kind of person I am, you can be sure you'll be glorious. I'll take care of that. You won't have to worry about your own reputation. I'll take care of that. Okay, so we uh, need to move along here to chapter 7. Uh, we're done with yesterday's stuff. We're ready to start today's stuff. Now, even our most human, intimate human relationships are deeply stained with various degrees and aspects of condemnation. We are so accustomed to blame shifting and scapegoating that we hardly even notice it, except when we're on the receiving end of it, of course. And we must face up to this. We must face up to the fact that we often blame someone else for something uh, for which we're really at fault. And uh, even if we can blame them a little bit, we like to do it because it tends to shift the blame from us. And sometimes all together, and we just scapegoat and say, they're the ones who did it. It's all their fault, not mine. And beyond these evils, though, there's the evil of um, just subtly letting people know that you don't approve of them or something they've done. And this can, oh, we, we can't even go into all the ways this happens. But you know when it happens to you. You right now, if I said, think of somebody that whenever you're in your presence, you think you're being scrutinized. You're already probably thinking of somebody. You feel like you're always under analysis with them. They're always trying to, you know, evaluate you. You're always under their scrutiny. That's what Jesus says, we got to get rid of that. We, got, we, we, we have to have such goodwill toward people, not that we'll never warn them, not that we won't, we'll never tell them that what they're doing is wrong. That could very well be that it is. But we, he's not talking about that. He's talking about the fact that it is self-righteousness in us that drives us to always be scrutinizing someone else. And we lift our own self-perception by, ma by making sure they know that we don't approve of them. Well, this is such a true psychological reality. I and mean, we just recognize how easy it is to just, you know, look down our noses at, at somebody. It's very related to contempt here, but it's the actual practice of just making sure that everybody around us, or some people around us, especially some people, uh, know that we disapprove. It's very important that you know that I don't like that. Jesus says the problem with that, of course, is just like, the cycle of vengeance. It just comes right back on you. So if that's with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. That's what happens. The interpersonal relationships. Exact, Jesus knows the way the, the world works. That's exactly what happens. Pretty soon they're pointing their finger at you and you're pointing it back at them and the cycle just goes on and maybe you're now going to get into the, 
to the vengeance uh, sort of category that he already warned us about. But uh, we have to be so careful that we allow people to be people. And that is that we don't manipulate them into doing what we want by making them feel guilty about it. Advancing our own agenda, getting what we want because we've shamed them into it or something like that. Well, you do want to do, don't you? Or, well, don't you, don't you think it would be just right if, whatever. Uh, say, so Jesus' brain advice is just to get out of that s- cycle of settling, subtly letting others know we are not pleased with them, do not think highly of them. See, love never cajoles, either with flattery or with guilt. It never manipulates. Like God, who C.S. Lewis says, God never ravishes, he only woos. You know, it's really, uh, there aren't any shotgun weddings with God. He's always just inviting He's always asking, but never forcing. And that's Jesus, that's his character, and that's to be our character, and this is one aspect of it. Uh, So as in anger and contempt and various other means of using and manipulating others, judging them brings judgment from them in return, and we reap what we sow. The desire to judge is a plank in our own eye. Judging is another way of attempting to manage our own life circumstances without regard for Father's present kingdom. And it is a plank in our own eye. Now, uh, very related to that is Jesus' warning that even if your intention is very good and you really have a pearl, don't give it to those who will not accept it, receive it. Um, Pigs have no appreciation for pearls at all. They're not edible. And so if you keep trying to feed pearls to pigs, they'll turn around and eat you instead because at least you're edible. (laughs) This is so true, of course, with pigs, but we just get what Jesus is saying here. Do not try and force onto others even things you know to be true if they are not ready to receive them. Because they won't receive them as something good. See. Whew. And of course it takes some discernment. Yeah, it's going to take some real cooperation with the Spirit of God to figure this out. Uh, but it's just true. So how do you get what, you're, what you think you ought to have if you're not uh, pushing your pearls before pigs and you're not manipulating people with guilt? How do you get what you need? Well, I'll tell you what. You ask. Jesus is the same way. He asks. Just ask. Do you know it's a very powerful force in the kingdom? It even has some apologetics force, by the way, if you think about the nature of the kingdom and how powerful asking is. You think about it just for a second. Think about, I don't know how many of you have dogs. I don't have one right now, but I've had them, lots of them, and I love dogs, especially golden retrievers. We had three of those, and I don't want to get all weepy about that now, but <laughs> you know what it's like if you got yourself a little snack and just a little bit of time, and maybe you want to sit down and read a chapter out of a book or magazine or something like that, and, and you take your little sandwich, you're all alone in the house, you take your little sandwich and, and maybe your cup of iced tea or something like that, and you take it off into a corner, and you think you're going to be all alone enjoying this with delight, and all of a sudden, guess who's there? And even if it's a polite dog, you know, even if it's sitting, it's still sitting on the floor. (laughs) (laughs) Those big brown eyes and those, oh my goodness. And it's not fun to say no. It's not fun. And Jesus knows this. We, we, We were designed this way. If we need something, we ask. We have to be very careful we're not demanding something of God. I think we have to be very careful for trying to pressure God into doing what we want done. We just have to ask. 
We are his kids. He's our Abba. He will do what's good for us if we ask. Remember back now to uh, the, well, no, this chapter actually. That's where he says this. Um, th- and just now in these verses, he'll say, and now which of you fathers, uh, if his son asked for a piece of bread, would you give him a stone? If he asked for a fish, would you give him a serpent? Over in, I think it's Luke, he says, if you asked for an egg, would you give him a scorpion? No, then how much more, do you, even you who being evil, know how to give good gifts to your kids. How much more you then? So the way of righteousness in the kingdom is never a matter of demanding. We don't stand up in God's, and say to God, now you said you do this. Will you please? Will you please? That's the nature of life in the kingdom is to recognize that every breath we've ever taken is the largesse of God, the benevolence of God. And he wants to do good things for his kids. And he might just know a little bit more about it than we do. Well, let's sum it up. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, Jesus said. This is the sum of the whole thing now, remember. He started out by saying, "I, I want you to be the salt and light. I want you to be the hope that you are the hope of the world. If it does, if you don't do it, it's not going to get done sort of thing. And we say, well, what, what, what? And he says, well, get rid of your anger. Get rid of your contempt. Get rid of your fantasized desire. Get rid of manipulating people with words. Get rid of your addiction to applause. Get rid of your uh, treasuring the wrong things and mistreatment of people by manipulating them with guilt and so on and so forth. Do all of those things. And he says, here's the sum of it. So, therefore... Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Remember what he said earlier, right at the beginning of this uh, series? I did not come to set aside the law, but I've come to fulfill it. And now he's telling us how to fulfill it. See, Whatever you would have them do to you, you do to them. And he says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. And we almost always hear that quoted about whether you're going to heaven or hell when you die. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about what we've been talking about. There aren't very many people, including Christians, who actually go in the narrow gate to have life. See, this is the way we started. The whole thing, most of us are not walking in the kingdom at all. Most of us do not want to uh, abandon our agenda for the sake of Jesus and other people. We just don't want to do that. We want to hang on to our own way of managing life because we think that we know how to get life. And we think Jesus is a bit naive about all of this. And and it would just be way too hard anyway. And Jesus says, yeah, it's going to be a bit difficult. And not very many people are going to choose that path, but it's the path to life. And by the way, it gets easier. And that's why he said, when you learn of me, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He is working with us to will and to do according to his good pleasure. You can be sure his grace will join us. It's like learning to walk and counting on gravity. The grace is there. He's promised it. It'll be there. But we're going to have to take some steps and learn some things and concentrate on it, and it will be, require some discipline. Paul said things like, I beat my body. Well, he didn't go around with whips and beating. No, what he meant was, I am disciplining myself. Everybody, he says, who wants to be a good athlete goes into strict training, and they just do it for nothing, you know, just rust and, 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 and moths. You know, but we do it for stuff that lasts forever. But we do it, see? We go into strict training. So he told, tells Timothy, Timothy now to go into strict training. He tells the Philippians, now the things you've actually seen in, in me, witnessed in me practicing, you practice those things, and the God of peace will be with you. But there's some content there. There's something really to do there. Here's Jesus' core curriculum about what that content should be. 
Well, he, anyway, uh, we're out of time. So I'm going to stop, and uh, I'm just delighted to have been here. And uh, now, Father, I'm going to ask that you would please bless and keep all these dear children of yours, that you would make your face to shine upon them and be gracious to them, that you would look right at them and give them, make them whole, give them peace. And because I'm still praying and not say amen, I'm going to add some stuff to what I've just said to these folks and address them again, Father, because maybe you're bringing it to my mind or maybe it's just me. But Jesus, I want to acknowledge that there are those who are uh, wolves in sheep's clothing, as you're going to say here, just right as we finish this text. There are those who pretend to have a message from you, but it's not really it. And there will be some even who have said, look at all the marvelous things I've done in your name. And you'll say, no, see you later. <laughs> Out of my sight. I never knew you. And then you turn back to the folks and say, now there are two kinds of folks here, and I'll just say that. I'm among you now. I'm not one as one over you. I'm among you. And I'm one of two kinds of people that Jesus talks about here. I'm of the kind that build my house on the sand because it's easy. It doesn't require any digging. Or I dig deep and I lay my foundation on a rock and build my house on the foundation. And storms come. That's just the nature of being a human being in this broken world. Storms come. If I want to be the kind of person who stands, it's going to be because I've become the kind of person who has become like Jesus. And this is what Jesus says about that. He says, now there are two kinds of people, those who actually hear what I'm saying, but don't go into training. They don't apprentice with me. They don't actually do it. And they're like a house built on the sand. There are those who actually do it, and they're like a house built on the rock. The storm comes, beats vehemently against it, but it either stands or falls depending on what kind of a person they've actually become. And uh, Father, I want to pray for me and for all the rest of us that we won't be eggshell persons, <laughs> that we'll be solid, vibrant, uh, Christ-like, and then we'll be able to stand no matter what life throws at us. It won't be our undoing. And, uh, of course, Jesus, I want to acknowledge that you also here talked about trees and fruits and figs and thistles and grapes from thorns. And, uh, yes. I pray that these things would really have deep meaning to us and we would understand you, what you are offering us is not a hollow promise and you're not exaggerating. And the reason if we don't have it fully, it's because we have not understood or followed uh, what you have to say about how life really comes. Well, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.